but it's two chapters that show some quite a fair bit of detail about things that are happening at the last time. And that's a phrase uh, that any of us that are reading scripture should be aware of when we see things at like the last days or at the end days or the last time tells us that that is an event that's going to occur uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ will return to this earth. So tonight we're going to go over a number of events that have occurred over this year and no doubt you probably know many of them but hopefully we can basically go through and just see that a lot of these events that are spoken of in Ezekiel 38 are coming to pass, are happening uh, as we would expect. Uh, some are somehow, I guess, challenging us a little bit in yeah, how they are working out, but uh, hopefully at the end of the night we'll see that these things are coming to pass and these things are happening. So these, what are signs? First, we had the word in our chapter tonight. What are signs? A sign, a road sign is something, if you're driving down the road, it's going to tell you turn left towards Adelaide or turn right to go somewhere else. It's telling you what's ahead. And that is what we mean by signs of the times. It's seeing something happening and making us aware that what is coming next, what is ahead. And that thing that's coming next is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But um, if you want to come across to Ezekiel 38, it's a chapter most of you will know well, and we covered it in quite a bit of detail just two or three weeks ago, so we're not going to go into quite as much detail. But I've just set out the three groups on the screen there of verses 2 to 7, the northern force. And uh, yes, you can correct me, there are nations that are south as well. But basically the, the leader of it is from the north. Uh, verse 8 is they're coming against Israel, so we separate them. But uh, the third group there is the verse 13, the Tarshish group. But uh, to me, the Tarshish group seem to be there with Israel, so you could probably join them together. But we've got a number, of, a list of nations there from verse 2 to 7. Um, if you've got the King James there, it says, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. So if you're here a few weeks ago, uh, we saw quite clearly that that word chief is the Hebrew word of Rosh, and other translations actually translate it as Prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. And one that's quite a good uh, translation is Young's Literal. So it's a literal translation, and that's how it uh, points it out as well. So that's where we get the idea of Russia being involved here, as that's what the ancient Russians were known as, the Ross, or the Rus, and even many of their things today, they have uh, in their business names and things um, have Ross or Rus in there. So they, they even refer to themselves by that as well. So I have on the screen there a number of uh, the various nations as uh, people have worked out over time what they mean, uh, how the people and families spread through into Europe or down south into Africa and how those nations have uh, become to known as well, we would know them today. Some of them, like if we look towards the bottom there, you've got Libya, they're still known by that name today. But we could take that literally as Libya, but also that region of North Africa. So uh, it may not be exactly that country within those exact borders, but the people in that area. And we see there above that one is Ethiopia, so that's uh, translated as Kush. So a lot of people align that with Sudan, which is right next to the nation of Ethiopia anyway, but that region. So hopefully that's clear enough. Um, in verse 13, we then see uh, another group. We have Sheba and Dedan. 
um, which we generally align those with the people of the Arabian Peninsula. So there's actually a, a city there called Didan in Saudi Arabia, um, and there's um, yeah, it's Saudi Arabia and those countries like Oman um, on the regions of the uh, Arabian Peninsula. I also have a Tarshish mentioned there, and we align that usually with the United Kingdom or England. And uh, there's a lot of various um, details about that which we don't really have time to go into tonight. And the phrase there of young lions is probably a really good indicator of who that is, of the Commonwealth of England. Uh, aligning that with that Tarshish power. And we, we've probably seen the posters from World War I of the mother lion calling the, uh, the young lions to go to war. So it was a good indicator of who that is. But I guess to me, in some ways, even if you forget all the names of the countries, do we see this group that is, is a northern group, uh, which is separate from this other group of verse 13? And even if you just look at the world events, you'll see that those groups are separating. Uh, and they are aligning with each other. If we start lining up some of those names with them, we can see those things happen. And we know, obviously, Russia's invading Ukraine at the moment, uh, so they're not particularly on friendly basis with the other nations on that list. But hopefully you'll see that uh, their influence uh, may be something completely different to uh, their friendship. It may still have the same result. So, to me, the whole point of tonight is to see the signs are happening and it is, uh, to me, a, a positive thing that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is soon to return on this earth. We can be quite negative about seeing what's happening in this earth and seeing it is just war and rumours of war, but we should see these as a, a sure sign of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have, uh, from Ezekiel uh, 38, just some of those nations roughly where they are in the world maps, and hopefully you're aware of those where they are. Uh, we have central or sorry western Europe over there where France is uh, we have Germany that sort of central Europe area and then across to the top we have Russia and if you go directly hopefully you can see the word Moscow just sort of above Russia if you go directly down you will get to the Middle East so in this Ezekiel 38 when it says um, like to the north uh, if you go north from the Middle East you land in in Russia so you can't go any further north than that. And obviously we have the other nations there, Turkey, Iran, and then in Africa, Libya and Sudan. So if you cast your minds back a few years, it's eight years ago now, um, in March, February to March, Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula. It seems like a, a, almost a lifetime ago that, that happened and it's sort of gone, gone from our minds. But that was actually a massive event when that occurred, that... Russia boldly moved on this peninsula that uh, used to belong to them, but it would now belong to the nation of uh, Ukraine. And what did the Western powers do about it? They did nothing, did they? And so little things like that, to me, show uh, in Ezekiel 38, if you're still there, if you look at verse 13, uh, so in this chapter, this massive force has come down against the mountains of Israel, in verse 13 it says, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof shall say to thee, Are you come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle, goods, and to take a great spoil? So here that group just ask a question. They ask questions like, what, what are you doing? And that's pretty much all we saw when Russia uh, took the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, they just ask questions. 
they did send in military uh, naval vessels uh, into that area as a bit of a show of support, but nothing really happened. They didn't. There was no repercussions on Russia uh, for that move. And so no doubt Russia was emboldened in what they can get away with and what they can do. And that, from a strategic position, is, is very important to Russia, having uh, naval um, bases on the Crimean Peninsula allows them to push south into the Mediterranean. And we'll come back to that um, in a little while. So since that time, Russia was building up uh, forces along the Ukrainian border. Uh, and so that's been eight years ago. They've been slowly uh, building up their forces along that, that edge there, or that border there. And quite interestingly, I was looking through my notes um, when I sit through meetings like this. I like to take notes to keep my mind focused. And roughly this time last year, we had the same talk on current events. And the speaker, Dan Nichols, said, he mentioned this about Russia is building their forces and we don't know when they will move in. And so 12 months later, Russia has moved. They've taken a big step. So it's good to see when we look back, we see we're waiting for these things to happen. And here we are 12 months later and these things are, are happening. So this year, 24th of February, Russia invaded uh, in what was into Ukraine, in what was supposed to be a, a lightning uh, move by Russia to take the whole of Ukraine. Well, that's what it was spoken of as. So why does Russia uh, want Ukraine? There's probably a number of reasons. Uh, one that's probably not really mentioned a lot is actually Ukraine produces a massive amount of food. Uh, it's quite a substantial amount of, particularly Europe, uh, but the world's grain and things like that, the uh, ability they have from an agricultural point of view. Um, but more importantly to Russia is Ukraine was part of Russia and Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire. We have a number of strategic reasons as well of, of Europe uh, and NATO, the power of uh, the, the US being there, pushing towards Russia in their mind. Uh, having Ukraine under their complete control obviously gives them that buffer zone uh, between them and the rest of Europe. And um, when you think about it, if you are Russia and you look at the, the West as your enemy, uh, Ukraine in the last few years have had some quite big shifts in their political environment and have become very pro-West. And you can see there from Russia's point of view that's not a good thing. In the past they've had people there who would do what Russia would want, and that's what they preferred. So uh, there's a political reasons there as well. So the comment in the middle there is Putin perceives the West as weak, but is also fighting for his own political survival. So this is just as much about him surviving in Russia as the leader, uh, because he realises with the West and the influence of the West moving in um, on, on his border. Uh, but some of these... Uh, like rockestra.edu website, have some fantastic interviews with, I guess you would call them experts on world events, who are analysing what's going on and coming up with their decisions on, or their, their reasonings on why, why is Russia doing this, or how, why have they done it this way? So it's probably, you could read probably, I don't know, for hours and hours and hours on these people and what they've come up with. So the question there is, what if Putin is successful? So People have been asking, uh, is he going to be successful? Uh, what if they fail? But what if he is successful here in Ukraine? Uh, from the Western media that we get, uh, it does seem like the Ukraine are putting up a great resistance. They're fighting them back 
and they are winning. And when you think about it, it is their homeland. They are fighting to survive, whereas the Russian soldiers are really just there to take some land for uh, their president. So it would seem at this stage anyway that Ukraine are winning. It says here that most prominently the Baltic states, but also the other USSR uh, successor republics, will have every reason to think that they are next. So you can think of any of the countries in that area, uh, even Poland uh, and those to the north or around uh, down south of Russia like um, uh, Georgia and things like that. They'd be watching very closely what's happening because they know that they are in, in the very next step as well. And one of the commentators there says, if Russia is successful, the world will change. It's quite a bold uh, statement, isn't it? And that's from uh, Hein Gomans, who's a professor at the University of Rochester in New York. So even the world is saying, if this is what's happening, the world, so the people in the world are saying, uh, this is going to cause the world as we know it to change. So what does Putin really want? So a lot of commentators agree that Russia wants to remove that pro-Western government that is in Ukraine. So, um, sorry, there's a lot of text there. But uh, the overall, even if he, they're saying, even if he doesn't get the land, as long as he can weaken that government that's there and bolster his own supporters in Ukraine, then that would actually be a success in uh, Putin's eyes because of that Western influence, as we mentioned, and replace it with what they would call like a, a puppet um, a prime minister or something in there. So I've got a couple of um, statements there from various people at different universities and uh, things like that. So we've got one there from a, a lady called Catherine Stoner, who's a director of um, democracy, development and the rule of law at Stanford University. So this is a war on Ukraine's democracy and it has nothing to do with Russian fear, fears of it one day joining NATO. So he's saying there's a lot of talk about NATO, but she's saying that's, that's just uh, talk. They're not actually really worried about that. Ukrainian independence and democracy is an existential threat to his personalistic autocracy. So they're saying the way Ukraine is being run is actually a massive threat to uh, Putin himself and the way he's governing uh, Russia. And the next um, commentator there says, Putin's ambitions go far beyond Ukraine. He invaded Ukraine to win his war against the West. So we see a war in Ukraine, Putin sees a war against the West, against Europe and against the United States and anyone uh, who's allies with them. Uh, this person here says, if we do not fight him economically, diplomatically or militarily in and for Ukraine, he will move forward faster than we think possible. Putin described Finland and maybe Sweden as part of his dominion. So you can see, sorry, his domain. So you can see in his own speeches what Putin is talking about and where he wants to go. It says he discussed the Baltic states and Poland, which are NATO members, as results of the Second World War that belong to Moscow. So you can see his ambitions, can't we? If Putin takes Ukraine, he will continue. If he loses, it will be the beginning of his end. So uh, this person says, we can fight now, save Ukraine lives, or we can fight later for more tarnished honour or erode bit by bit until the anomaly of democracy, as Putin believes it to be, is gone. So they're saying we need, as the Western states, they're talking obviously the US, 
uh, Germany, France really need to step up because it, as we see, Russia's moving slow, but they're not going to stop. They're going to continue. So I think it's uh, pretty amazing that these people are saying things that we would look at scripture and say that's probably what's going to happen. So just a quick uh, look at the maps of, um, of Ukraine here. Uh, we can see Russia on the right, the red areas uh, where Russia has military control. Now at the very beginning of their invasion they tried to just sweep across all the way to uh, Kiev but that seemed to have failed and they've pulled back all the way to these red lines and they have set up um, as that this belongs to them. Now the purple there says held or regained by Ukraine. So Russia did hold them but Ukraine has been able to get them back. And we see there uh, down to the bottom we see the Crimea Peninsula as well as part of that. So this is a, a picture from the BBC uh, website. So as I mentioned before, it would seem that Ukraine are actually doing a really good job of holding Russia back. They're having victories, uh, but we know that it only really takes Russia to step up another couple of levels before it overruns. Um, and some of the things that I think uh, have been interesting is little, you get little snippets occasionally in the news, uh, like the US is starting to run low on uh, certain missiles that they have. So they're starting to work out how they need to step up and start manufacturing more missiles uh, because they don't want to obviously run out. They have levels of 10,000 or whatever it is of a, of a certain missile and they're getting down to those minimum stock levels. And so the uh, US is actually one of the biggest supporters of Ukraine uh, in the world, as we'll see in a few moments. So it probably, to me, it doesn't seem that hard for Russia to step up another few levels as the Western countries are starting to scratch their head and wonder uh, how, how much more they can support Ukraine and for how long as well. And a comment I've got at the bottom is if you think about Syria, the war, the civil war that's still raging uh, in Syria some 12 years after it started. So uh, Russia has been there with the Syrian uh, government and have just slowly helped and supported uh, uh, him and what's going on there. And in Russia's mind, they're in no rush down there, are they? It's, it's a different country and their mode of operandi is almost the same in uh, Ukraine as well. So some of the other nations that we mentioned was Germany or Central Europe. Uh, Germany's not too far from Ukraine, so um, what have they been doing and what's their response? So you may remember at the beginning of this year, Germany promised 5,000 helmets. At the time, it was quite a joke that Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, US and England and everyone uh, sent all these missiles and everything over and the first thing the Germans said was, well, we'll give you about 5,000 helmets. And it seemed, and they've actually, they received a lot of criticism from all the other Western nations for uh, their lack of support to the Ukrainian uh, nation. But the newer uh, Chancellor, his name's Olaf Scholz, uh, or Scholz, he has made a massive change to the thinking in Germany into what they do about uh, conflict in the world. So you may be aware, since uh, World War II, uh, one of the big, um, I guess, uh, agreements within Germany is they do not support uh, any other nation, a conflict zone, with weapons. 
So they don't want to get involved in these conflict zones. So they'll send down uh, help like uh, medical, they'll send helmets or defensive things, but they've refused in the past to send military, so guns, tanks and, and missiles and things like that. So in the few weeks after the Russian invasion, uh, Olaf, who is interestingly is a very left uh, socialist um, party in Germany, who normally aren't interested in fighting and things like that, has declared that his government would boost their own defence spending by an extra 84 billion uh, euros, which uh, brings them up to what they, uh, the other NATO nations uh, are spending. He also suspended the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia. So if you think you're receiving the vast majority of your gas from a certain country and you declare to your nation that we're going to turn that off, uh, because of obviously what Russia's doing, they've certainly taken a lot of courage on his part uh, and his party to, to do this. And as we've got there, he's reversed the long-standing ban on transferring arms to conflict zones. So if you think how long ago was World War II, that ban has stood that test of time. And in this year, we've seen that uh, turn around and, and be changed. So we have this, uh, the Zeitenwend, which is what they're calling his speech. And that speech is, uh, literally means the change of time. Yeah, turning of the time is what it means in German. So they're declaring the speech that he gave is a, a shift in German time, uh, in their, their history. So it says there was one of the most important recalibrations of German foreign policy since unification in 1990, uh, which is obviously the uh, Berlin Wall coming down. It marked Germany's waking up to the geopolitical realities of 2022. So Germany has actually been very uh, criticised by the surrounding nations uh, for how they've uh, acted. And they have actually been called Putin's enabler because of their lack of response uh, to what uh, Putin had been doing for quite a long time, if you think back to Crimea. So this is quite a big step up for them except they're still resisting the urge to lead. Obviously, they're one of the, with France, one of the most wealthiest nations in Europe, and uh, they're still resisting that desire to lead the nations uh, there because of their history. Um, so there's a couple of other things that are, have been happening as well um, in, in Germany. Uh, so just remember there's a little note at the bottom about the US and their support for Ukraine. So the US support is more than all of Europe together. So if you think about US as a pretty long way from Ukraine, uh, if you get all of the nations of Europe and what they've given to Ukraine, the US has more than that. So it shows you the real influence there uh, in that is of the US. But just recently, uh, there's actually been a bit of a, a surge or a uh, right-winger uh, influences started to come back in Germany as well. It's probably been there the whole time, but it's starting to resurface. So since 2018, there's been four uh, violent attacks. So they're uh, shootings in public or explosions, things like that, uh, that are linked to these far-right uh, groups. Uh, and in May 2022 this year, German, they uh, did an investigation into their own military so to find, they realise there's obviously an influence there and they found hundreds of Nazi-linked staff in their own security um, agencies. 
So these are, when they say Nazi elite, this is far-right groups that believe they should go back to the old style uh, like they used to be under uh, Hitler or, or that type of um, governance, at least, anyway. Uh, they don't like the Western, necessarily, um, way of thinking. So just recently, in this last couple of weeks, I think it was um, two weeks ago, uh, there was 25 arrests made, which doesn't sound that many, really, but 3,000 officers were involved. So that's how serious Germany uh, took this. Uh, they raided 130 properties across uh, Germany, including in Italy and in Austria, and made 25 arrests for an armed coup that had been planned. And uh, the first 25 was on the radio, and they, they mentioned that one of the men involved was actually a magistrate, so these aren't people who are unemployed. These aren't people who are, are desperate for money and you know, they haven't had a job or they're struggling with costs. Uh, some of these are actually the um, upper levels in society and have money. And one of them is actually this man who is actually, te or technically, or from his heritage, is a prince. He's Prince Heinrich the Thirteenth, um, and his great grandfather abjugated the throne in Germany in one of the, the states in Germany at the end of World War I. And he, uh, even his own family, is uh, distancing themselves from him because of his um, far-right views on what Germany should be doing and where they should be heading. So this coup was going to set him up as the ruler and one of his friends as the general of the army. So you can see these influences are actually there. Uh, when we look at, at the world, we see the current government and things like that. But we can see boil, bubbling underneath, there is a lot of um, turmoil actually happening. And all of the people who were arrested were very heavily armed, so they were expecting a fight. So obviously they, the German um, officers were able to get onto this one early, and so there wasn't actually um, any fighting involved that arrested these individuals. Uh, one of the raids themselves was actually in one of the special units in the German uh, special forces, and that's where they arrested some people in that as well. Now, this may be of recall, may bring to mind something that happened back in 1923 when something similar to this happened, uh, where um, Hitler did exactly the same thing. He tried to rise up at that time and take over the country, and he ended up himself in prison for that uh, military coup in 1923, and that is what he called his march on Berlin. So we can see these little things uh, a repeat of history in some ways. Um, so we can, it is interesting to just see what is happening uh, maybe just underneath the, the surface. Um, the PR on the end of his name as well, this gentleman here, um, is, is Rust Ross, so the area he's in is actually very similar to the word of Russ, um, of where of the nation that, or the, the the what we'd probably call the state that he um, is come from. Um, his wife or girlfriend is actually Russian as well, and so she was arrested. And apparently, she has links to uh, the Russian uh, upper echelons as well. So, moving down to Turkey in Ezekiel uh, 38, we have that Tagama of Turkey, and I find the, the president there, Erdogan, what he says and what he does is fascinating. I don't think he hides anything. He just tells exactly what he's thinking to the media or to everyone. Whether he changes his mind tomorrow, it might be different. But he pretty much 
tells what he's going to do or what he's thinking. And he has played a really interesting role in this uh, war between Russia and Ukraine. So I think he's just below them both. So where Russia there, we had the Crimean Peninsula, just down the bottom of that Black Sea is Turkey. He, I think he understands the situation he's in uh, against Russia if things were to go uh, bad. But he's actually uh, played quite a, a mediator role between the president of uh, Ukraine and the, of uh, Russia. He's tried to get them together. He's tried to uh, work with them. Uh, he's tried to play that mediator role uh, between them. He's also been very active in northern Syria in the conflict that's happening there uh, with Iraq, with the Syrian civil war and ISIS uh, because they have uh, claims to some of that um, area as well. So if you think of northern... Um, if you think Turkey goes across, I didn't actually realise until recently how far across it actually goes. It actually does cover a fair bit of the north of Syria and Iraq. And Turkey believed that some of that belongs to them, um, which is quite interesting as well. Now, Turkey, as we've got there in some of the uh, boxes, Turkey helped broker a deal between uh, Ukraine and Russia to allow uh, some grain to be exported through the uh, Black Sea. So he was quite um, important in that role of getting these ships of grain out of Ukraine just recently. And out of all the countries to do sanctions, Turkey hasn't. So he hasn't uh, introduced sanctions on Russia for their move into Ukraine, which is quite interesting. Uh, just this month, so December 22, President uh, Putin has made plans to make Turkey a hub for Russian gas. And the theory is there that this would allow Moscow to mask where the sales of their um, gas is going. So if other countries buy it and they say, well, we bought it from Turkey, that's perfectly legal, well, that probably came from, from Russia. So there's this uh, in the back end there. You can see Russia is, is diverting some of their export, exports through to Turkey. And they already do have the pipelines and that going through Turkey. Uh, that's their southern um, direction through into Europe, um, where the one we mentioned before into Germany is the northern pipelines. Uh, Putin as well this month is trying to get Assad, who's the president of Syria, and Erdogan, the president of Turkey, together to uh, try and sort out their differences there. So while to, uh, Putin's busy with his war in Ukraine, he's trying to mediate between these other two uh, down here. So on Turkey's other borders is growing tensions with Greece. Uh, following World War uh, I, a lot of the land, when it was divided up, some of it used to belong to Turkey, some of it to Greece, and neither have been happy with uh, how that uh, came to uh, was divided up, uh, particularly the Aegean Islands there, and, there uh, and Cyprus as well, are what they're called uh, disputed territories. So just recently, Erdogan announced that they've started building their own ballistic missiles, so built there in Turkey, and their test of in the Black Sea they could fire this accurately for 560 kilometres. And he made the point in his speech about this that it would reach Athens. So that was the big, obviously, pointer to Greece that, watch out, we can reach you from our home country as well. And in their sort of disagreements with Greece, uh, he said that we can come down suddenly one night when the time comes. He's talking about the growing uh, forces on the Aegean islands uh, of Greek soldiers. 
and the Turkish foreign minister, I'm not going to try and say that name, he warned the Greece to stop militarising these islands, otherwise Ankara, would take, which is in Turkey, would take the necessary steps on the ground. So they're off over there threatening Greece at the same time um, about what they can do there. Now, one of the really interesting things to look forward to, I think in the next two years at least, is the Treaty of Lausanne, is a French word. So this was following World War I, and as the Ottoman Empire was pushed all the way back to the lands of Turkey, they signed over um, a few years these various uh, treaties. The first one uh, was, was replaced by this one. I haven't got the name in front of me now. Um, but this one was signed mainly in 20, sorry, 1923 and then some additional parts in 1924 as other countries uh, became involved. Now, it depends who you talk to, depends if they believe they're expiring or not, but President Erdogan certainly believes that they are expiring next year. And he has actually, for a long time, been talking about the new Turkey. Uh, that was one of his big things of when he first became uh, into a prime ministership, was the new Turkey of the future, of what he saw. And a lot of that is to do with these uh, requirements coming to an end. Uh, so at the top left we can see some of the nations that are involved there is Britain, France, Greece, Italy, Japan, Romania. So all the nations around them uh, and obviously England with their influence in the, um, the Ottoman Empire being pushed back or drying up. And they, these, uh, this treaty was about lands, it was about borders, so we just talked about Greece, but also on the other side, as I mentioned earlier, over the top of Iraq in Syria and some of the, the towns there uh, used to belong to Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, and they still believe that they have claim on them. And one of them is Mosul, which is, produces a massive amount of oil for Iraq, in northern Iraq. Uh, so the other ones there is the sea declared, so that's the, sorry, the Black Sea declared open to all. So we know the Black Sea there, uh, as it goes through the Bosphorus uh, Strait, is right through Turkey, that currently is open for all. So technically, Turkey can't claim any tax um, on that, whereas as of next year, they'll able to be start charging tax for every boat that goes through that bit of water. We'll have to pay Mr Erdogan uh, some money. And the other one there as well is preventing them from drilling for oil or gas. Now, they already do produce a lot of oil, but they've sort of gone around this a little bit um, cagely, I guess. They're getting, they'll do the, all the exploration and they'll get other people to come and do the drilling for them. Whereas as of next year, they'll be able to do all the drilling themselves for oil and then start exporting that as well. So if you think of a country right now which is actually really struggling uh, financially, um, the unemployment there is, is massive. And the uh, finance minister was told recent, uh, said to the population recently, just hold on, just hold on. And you wonder why? Well, next year they re reckon they're going to come into a whole lot of money. So you can see the, these areas of places like Turkey um, can change quite significantly with these things. One of the new Turkey, as I've got in the top right there, is he wants Turkey to be a top ten economy in the world. And they're probably not that far off. Uh, they just need to sort out some of their um, unemployment and things like that. 
So he's been saying th the new Turkey has been one of the, his things for about at least 12, uh, 12 years. So the other point there is that um, Mosul there, uh, top of Iraq, is 20% uh, of Iraq's oil comes from that and Erdogan believes that that belongs to him. So it could be quite interesting to see what happens uh, there next year. Um, the other one as well is actually on uh, the religious side. Is in the Ottoman Empire, uh, the Ottoman Empire was the leader of the Islamic world, whereas today they're obviously not. The Islamic world is uh, Mecca in Saudi Arabia and places like that. Whereas Erdogan himself sees himself as a leader of Islam. And that's something that is part of those treaties uh, that should be coming to an end as well, is their claims on holy sites. So we might see some interesting events uh, next year. So as we mentioned before, we had uh, mentioned Ezekiel 38, Libya and Ethiopia. And um, there's some really interesting things been happening here with a Russian influence um, uh, recently. So that map is just from Google Maps, but it's really good to see this green line, which is just south, and the more um, Sahara Desert area to the north, is actually a perfect line of this influence of what Russia and other parties have there. So on the website VOA News, um, there's been a number of uh, European uh, leaders that are starting to really worry about what's happening in what they would declare as their southern border, uh, just across the Mediterranean. Uh, they say there that across Europe there's a growing uneasiness that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is serving to overshadow another critical, even existential threat that could do severe damage to the West while serving the Kremlin's interests. It says here, um, Across Africa, according to the multiple European and NATO officials, uh, cannot be overlooked no matter how deeply Russian president pushes into Ukraine. And they have what they call the belt of instability, which is this pretty much follows that green line right across um, through to the uh, Arabian Sea there. It's known as Sahel, which is this, this section right across. Um, from uh, east to west of um, Africa. So the Europeans are highlighting that there's a major influence there from Russia and there are nowhere are concerns growing as fast as they are in Sahel, which is the Dutch Defence Minister um, Ollengren and the U Lieutenant General uh, Manioni is a Deputy uh, Director of the European Union military staff, he said, is a, it is a tragic effect, it is a huge mistake in referring to what's happening down there and in letting Russia uh, do what they want. Uh, it says, we are keeping our resources in Europe just in case something happens up here and we're forgetting completely that actions should be taken now in another theatre. And says here that the main target of the Russians could be having people focused on Ukraine forgetting about action elsewhere. So Russia is trying to gain control over strategic territory in North Africa, most vividly seen in Libya. This would provide Moscow with an enduring security presence on NATO's southern border. And Libya itself, as you know from the Arab Spring, um, some 11 years ago now, 
is actually divided in two, and Russia has a massive influence on one half of that nation. And Libya, as we know, is a, a huge producer of oil, and so no doubt that's one of the reasons Russia's interested in it as well. Says here, combined with port access that Moscow is trying to gain on the Red Sea, this would put Russia in a position where it could disrupt maritime traffic through the chokeholds of the Suez Canal and the Bab el Mandad Strait, through which some 30% of global container traffic passes every year. So if you think further up where we have the Bosphorus and Turkey, and this is another strait down there that Russia is starting to gain large influence over. So the other major thing that happened this year, obviously, was the death of the Queen. Uh, she'd served 70 years to the British Empire, and she passed away on the 8th of September, just recently. And I think if anyone saw any of the, the funeral that uh, took place, it was, it was pretty amazing. And even the commentators said probably any leader of the world would never receive a funeral such as this. Um, no doubt her, her son probably would never, um, or anyone that gone before, just because of the lady uh, and the influence that she had to all parts of the world, whether they were part of her, um, her, her empire or not. But there's been a, a number of changes in, in England now, or the UK, isn't there? Obviously, we have a new king, uh, King Charles, and so the question is, what is he going to do? What influence is he going to have uh, on the people, or the nations that are, are allied with him? Uh, Brexit is still ongoing. The tensions of Brexit are still causing issues in that area. Uh, we've had a turnover of MPs because of that. They're, they're really struggling with trying to uh, stabilise themselves there in, in England. Um, my personal thought, though, is they're going to build stronger alliances with their actual allies. So the US and Australia, India particularly, uh, back down in this area where we have the traditional allies of England. So Brexit saw them leave Europe, where they had, obviously, a lot of their effort was tied up. And now that they're away from that, they can uh, re-energise and build stronger alliances with their traditional uh, partners. And you may remember from last year, the AUKUS agreement, which is Australia, UK and the US on uh, nuclear submarines, um, and that has obviously solidified an agreement between the three nations, uh, but is also part of a larger thing of, of England moving back down this way um, and as they've started to look at India, uh, one of their own uh, Commonwealth nations, as a major part um, that they need to deal with or work with. So I've realised we're starting to run out of time, but so looking at England, US and the Young Lions from verse 13 of Ezekiel uh, 38, uh, the Council for Foreign Relations um, says that this word, some of the things that we've learnt from 2022, as an article says the 10 things we've learned from 2022, one, they say, is that the word international community needs to be retired. They're saying we can see that we've been fooling ourselves all this time with this word of international community and there is a division and these nations aren't working together as they uh, said that they were. It's quite an interesting thing to, to have that said like that. They say that the fact that Russia was able to veto power in the Security Council, this is an article from uh, this Council for Foreign Relations, has rendered the UN impotent. So that's quite a pretty big thing to say, isn't it? That the power of the UN 
is completely useless. It says there that um, in Egypt uh, just recently there was a world leaders got together to try and discuss uh, climate change. They were leaders of most nations in the world and they, they failed. So there's articles saying that this international community is just imaginary. They're, they're not working together as they would say. And the other point was the global response to COVID-19. Uh, everyone's just trying to put it behind them and move on and there's no, nothing's going to be done about it. And the article says there's nothing even been planned for next time if it is to happen again. And the other, one of the other points they pull out is there is still a West. So there still is this divide of West and, and East. Um, and they talk about the US and its transatlantic partners um, in NATO responding to Russia's aggression. They can see that the US and the people that were traditional allies are still together working those that were the ancient allies of, of the East are coming together as well. Um, as mentioned there as well, the AUKUS um, as well. So I'll just keep going. So one of the interesting things about AUKUS, as I just mentioned before, um, there's an article about England's strategic review, which was done before AUKUS. Uh, so AUKUS was late 2021. This is beginning of 2021. It says that the United Kingdom is going to push to work more closely with Australia, the United States, in the Indo-Pacific region. And they actually had started to move some of their fleet back down this way as well. And it represents a further application of the United Kingdom's Indo-Pacific tilt, is the word that they've got there. So a tilt is leading, leaning towards it um, as part of this um, strategic uh, review that they did. So the other one we saw over the last uh, couple of years was actually the Abraham Accords. And um, I come across an article just said, how are they going? What's been happening? It's been pretty quiet. Um, it, and the article basically said it's slow and steady and they are, uh, things are happening there. Saudi Arabia, which in my mind, I thought they were part of it. They, they haven't signed up to it. Uh, one of the big things for Saudi Arabia is Israel needs to sort out uh, they want a full resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian issue. But they are still working with Israel to a level, um, as well as Oman and Qatar. They haven't actually signed up. But all these countries are actually working with Israel anyway, whether they've signed up on this agreement um, or these accords or not. Uh, but the, the other nations that were working with them, which is uh, Bahrain, Egypt, Morocco, United Arab Emirates, are building better and better uh, friendships and alliances. And they've started this year, which is going to be an ongoing summit called the Negev Summit, which is uh, south of Israel, where they come together and they're going to discuss as a group of nations how they can work together better uh, to help each other in that region. So if you went back 50 years ago, you would never have thought that these nations would be sitting together in a room talking about how they can educate each other, how we can send water to you if you send this to us, um, it's really, it can only be the hand of God working in these nations um, here. And so we always like a figure to see that things are moving. Um, they say since 2020, Israel defence exports to these other um, nations has been $790 million worth. So that's a significant amount. And the driver of that is a lot of these Arab nations are worried about Iran and they know that Israel is about the only one that can stand up to them. And some of the terminology of the Arab, um, Abraham Accords, it actually says it's a series of joint normalisation statements 
between Israel, UAE, Bahrain, etc., uh, of full peace. So it's not just an agreement to say, yes, we'll start working together, but it's a declaration of normal activity between nations. So if you think back to John Thomas and what he wrote in Elpis Israel or Eureka, uh, almost 200 years ago, who would never have thought, I guess, in some ways, that here is Israel working with the Arabs uh, in their homeland again. They would have sort of wrote, um, thought it, but it's just amazing to see it happening in our own time. So once again, we find in Israel Netanyahu's the Prime Minister again. I think it's for the third time. So if you're aware of Israel's uh, political system, it's quite chaotic, uh, but somehow he's been able to get back as the Prime Minister again. But um, one of the big things in interest of time, if we just go next slide, Netanyahu floats peace with the Saudis as a key to resolving conflict with the Palestinians. So that's just uh, come out uh, this week. So he's actually telling the United States that they need to resolve their issues with the Saudi Arabians. If they do that, then there's more likely for Israel and Palestine to have peace. So there's just some amazing things happening here of um, in Ezekiel 38 where they're living without walls and bars. Um, here's the Prime Minister of Israel saying, we'll talk peace with Israel um, if the US and Saudi Arabia sort out their issues. Uh, there's been quite a frosty relationship with the US um, and Saudi Arabia in the last few years. So he actually was saying that on a broadcast in Saudi Arabia. So it wasn't he was saying it somewhere else. He was actually telling a Saudi Arabian broadcast this. So you can see the influence that he has, uh, but also what he's willing to do. So the reading for tonight was Luke, uh, Luke 21, and we started back in verse 20 because that was a warning that the Lord Jesus Christ was giving to the people at his time. And he told them there that if they saw the armies surrounding Jerusalem, what they should do about it. And within a few years after Christ uh, had passed or gone to heaven, uh, it happened. And those that recalled his words would have uh, done what he'd said. And so then if you have your Bibles here, if you come back to Luke 21, uh, from verse 25, we have the continuation of Christ's uh, warnings to those living at our time. And we get that from the end of verse 24, where it says that Jerusalem would be trodden down by the Gentiles until the Gentiles' time comes to an end. And that is, is now, because the Jews have Jerusalem. They are there in Jerusalem once again. In verse 25 it says, And there shall be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars. And I've got on the screen there the meanings of, of each section there. So sun, moon, and stars, political heavens, political rulers. Uh, on the earth is the distress of nations. So those on the earth, are like the common person, are going to be major stress of the nations. So if you look at the screen, maybe you, we've got those there. So all the people and nations have significant problems. Um, the verse here says, with perplexity. So they're not just a problem that you need to work through. The problems are so complex that people will actually uh, have anxiety about whether they can even solve them or not. Uh, we have there the seas and the waves roaring. So that's like the people uh, are rising up like a wave, like a tumultuous wave. And I think you'll realise or would recognise this is definitely happening in the world around us as well. 
It says there in verse 26 that men's hearts will be failing them for fear. Um, in another translation, it says that people would faint because of what's coming on the earth. They'll see these things coming in the world and it's just too much and they're go going to faint. Their heart will fail. And that's what I mentioned at the beginning of our talk, that when we see these things, we shouldn't be like that. We should recognise that this is a sign that the Son of God is about to return to this earth. And I've got there, what is coming on the earth is, at the moment, what the people are seeing is corruption. There's things like COVID or diseases, there's climate change, which no one really knows how to fix, and so many other things as well. So just in regard to the world at unrest and um, uh, protests, hopefully that's reasonably uh, clear. We've got, just from the Global Protest Tracker, there's been 400 um, significant protests since 2017, which is a pretty big number. 132 countries have been affected and almost a quarter of them, so 23%, have lasted for more than, 23, uh, more than three months. So they are significant protests in over 100 um, countries have received or had people rising up and it's like the sea and waves are roaring. And on the Washington Post, they have uh, an article which says, are we in a historic age of protests? So they, they ran a, um, some investigations from 2006 to 2020. Um, protest movements have more than tripled. So in the last number of years, last 20 years or so, protests have gotten more and more, and they've gotten larger and larger and more and more frequent as well. And one of the key uh, things that the people are rising up against is their rulers. It says that 54% were prompted by perceived failure of their political systems or the representatives of those. So you can see that people are looking at the rulers and saying they're, not, they're corrupt, they're not doing what is right. And... That is one of the reasons why we look to the Lord, return of our Lord to this earth uh, to set up a righteous uh, government in that time. And quite quickly, here's just a couple of uh, protests we've seen just recently. A uh, massive one in Iran, uh, probably one of the biggest that they've had in a very long time. But these have been slowly growing since 2017. But you can go back further. There's been uh, protests in Iran, obviously, for a long time, but... Uh, they just seem to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the recent one was at the death of this lady called Masa Amini. Um, she died in police co uh, custody or she was taken to hospital um, because of the... Uh, it was basically because she wasn't wearing her head uh, covering properly. And so the people of Iran are coming out in great numbers. So they've received their, a lot of the, the reasons for it since 2017... Uh, it's quite a long list of why the people are coming out in protest. But also in China, so a long way from um, Iran, there's been some massive protests. So it would be quite rare to see protests uh, happen in China or for them to last very long. Uh, but they've had some massive issues there due to, or as the people say, they've had three years of very strict COVID restrictions. So maybe you're not aware, but they were basically locked down the whole city and no one can get out, no one can get in or they'll lock um, like apartment buildings and you can't get out or in. And just recently there was a, a fire in one of these city, in one of these apartment buildings and because of the COVID restrictions, the people couldn't get out and the firemen couldn't get in. And so a number of people died because of that. So the people are starting to come out even in China and uh, protest. 
And one of the other things that they've done, because China makes most electronics in the world, to keep these factories running, they've started to do what they call lock-ins, which means if you work for a factory, you live there. And so you don't go home, because if you go home, you'll probably get COVID and you bring it to the factory, then the factory has to close. So they've done lock-ins. So you will live there for three, six months um, at like a campus. But what happens if someone at the campus gets COVID? Well, then the whole thing just gets locked down and they'll keep a few working. So uh, they've actually surprisingly changed some of their policies just this last week, uh, which is pretty uh, big. But the point there is that the people of the world are rising up against the governments, just as it was saying here, um, the sea and the waves roaring. I've always got to put something in about archaeology as a sign uh, that people are still finding things to do with scripture and still proving that the Bible we have in front of us is God's word. And just recently, the last week or so, they've obviously been working on it for a long time, uh, they've been investigating the uh, Dead Sea Scroll Caves and they've found this tiny little fragment which they believe is part of one of the other Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and basically, obviously, with technology, they can find a lot more. Um, they're basically going through all the little crevices and, and investigating it uh, to the nth degree of these caves. They found a bit tiny little, was that five centimetres wide? So a tiny little fragment, but it's a section from Zechariah and Nahum, uh, part of the 12 minor prophets. They also found a, a massive basket and um, a mummified body in there as well. So obviously these caves go a long way into these mountains and coins and a blanket as well. So to me, little things like that are just a reminder to those that are watching that the word, the Bible we have in front of us is still being backed up, that these are the words of God given to his people uh, thousands of years ago. So just in final, Ezekiel 38, we've seen that God set out what would happen before the return of his son. And at the end of the chapter, it says that when all these nations are brought down against Jerusalem, then all will know, the whole point of it, is the whole world will then know that God exists. If you ask most people out there today, they don't really care, they're not really that fussed. But here there'll be, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, be completely, everyone will be completely convinced that God does exist because of what will happen at that time. And as we said before, the warning here in Luke 21 is in verse, as we, if we come back down to verse um, 26 and 27, that when these things are happening, the things that we're talking about, the things that we've seen, Christ says, then you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So we have been seeing these things. And so his word is, when you, just like the people at his time, back in Jerusalem, in, um, up to AD 69 when Jerusalem was destroyed, if they listened, they could have got out and saved themselves. So the, the warning to us is we need to listen as well to get out of this world and to save us when the Lord Jesus Christ returns.